0: Due to the extreme nature of this program, listeners' discretion is advised. The subject matters may include topics of substance usage, sex, foul language, and references to historical events that may be sensitive to some listener. Things discussed may not be considered politically correct in this overly sensitive environment. They may not be appropriate for listeners under the age of 13. As well as some listeners, no matter the age, may find things offensive. Again, listener discretion is advised.
1: This is a story of a long time ago, a time of myth and legend, when the world wasn't so sensitive, when we could laugh at ourselves and lived with our differences. Only one generation dared to make a difference, Generation X. Gen X possessed a strength the world had never seen, a strength only surpassed by the power to change pop culture and to shape the world. From flower power to the internet, via disco and big hair, they journeyed through time trying to improve life for all, but somewhere along the way, it all went wrong. Now, one man by the power of the podcast travels through time, reminding Gen Xers of days past, hoping each time it will rekindle the fire that was in their bellies way back in better days. Robert Pop is that podcaster, A grouchy old man on a crusade to champion the cause of a generation one episode at a time in a world unrecognizable from his youth, trying to put right what once went wrong and hoping each time that his spark will catch fire in others.
2: Greetings and salutations, and welcome to GXO, another episode of Generation Extraordinary, the podcast nobody asked for, focusing on everything pop culture from the greatest generation ever, Generation X.
3: So, if it happened between 1960 and 1999, we're going to
2: discuss it like movies, music, TV, and even a bit of history from that year. Who knows? You may just learn something before it's done. And if you're lucky, this old man may just regale you with a story or two from his own life and experiences. I'm Robert Pop, your host, coming to you from beautiful Podunk, Nebraska.
3: Whenever I feel like a sweaty slob, there's only one assurance that gives me peace of mind. And that's sledgehammer deodorant. I just go in to sprucing up like an airplane, wipe under each wing once and hit the tail and I'm good to go for days. Hell, I don't even need to take a shower for a whole week. That's how good this
1: shit is. Sledgehammer deodorant. That's how good this shit is.
0: By no one.
2: <clears throat> All right, welcome back to another episode of GXO, the podcast nobody asked for. Coming to you from beautiful downtown, absolutely nowhere podunk, Nebraska. This week, we are traveling back to the year 1960, and this is going to be a case of that you may or may not even have ever heard of. It's Ronnie and Reggie Cray. Now, they were gangsters in the uh, United Kingdom back in the 60s. But as always, we're going to have ourselves a little history lesson first. So in the, the top headlines for 1960, in the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev was leading the Communists. Dwight D. Eisenhower was the President of the United States. And Harold McMillan was the Prime Minister in the UK. Pope John 23rd was leading the Catholic Church. Some of the top headlines was that... JFK was elected a U-2 spy plane was shot down over Russia the Cold War continued to become colder as the two sides distrusted the other more and more and tried to influence other parts of the world the United States sent 3500 soldiers to Vietnam to kill a mockingbird was published OPEC those greedy bastards was formed the first televised presidential debate between JFK and Richard Nixon I am NOT a crook Cassius Clay wins his first pro fight and for those of you who don't remember uh, he later changed his name after becoming Muslim to Muhammad Ali might have heard of him the USS Enterprise launched the first nuclear-powered carrier France tested its first atomic bomb in the Sahara and joins the U.S., U.K., and U.S.S.R. as a nuclear power. Aluminum cans were used for the very first time in 1960. There was a vertical takeoff jet in the United Kingdom. The IRA, the Irish Republican Army, starts its fight against the British. That was a long, bloody attack. The United States Supreme Court decides the Boyant v. Virginia case. And I know I probably have mispronounced Mr. Boyant's name. Uh, the case revolved around. Uh, Mr. Bruce Boyant, an African-American law student who was arrested for trying to order at a quote-unquote whites-only restaurant in a bus terminal. The court ruled in a 7-2 to two decision that racial segregation in public transportation was unconstitutional. Those of us from the future already know that. Chubby Checker, he started a new dance craze with The Twist And Xerox introduced its first photocopier. In the music, top U.S. songs. He'll Have to Go by Jim Reeves. Love that song. Theme from A Summer Place by Percy Faith. It's Now or Never by Elvis Presley. Another good song. I'm Sorry by Brenda Lee. Now, I think Brenda Lee was one of those singers that just never, ever really had a big following, and she was such an amazing, talented artist. And then to round out the top five, of course, The Twist by Chubby Checker. In the UK, the Everly Brothers were number one for the year with Kathy's Clown. The Shadows had Apache, Cliff Richard, Please Don't Tease, never heard of that song, Anthony Newley, Why, and Shirley Bassey, As Long As He Needs Me, she's been around a long time, she did a song, uh, I believe it was for the Austin Powers movies called History Repeating with Propeller Heads, love that song. <clears throat> Top five in the r and Top five on the R&B charts: "A Thousand Stars" by Kathy Young and the Innocents, "Alone at Last" by Jackie Wilson, "Am I the Man Again" by Jackie Wilson, "Are You Lonesome Tonight" by Elvis Presley with the Jordanaires, and "Bye Bye Baby." by Mary Wells. Top 5 country songs A Little Guy Called Joe by Stonewall Jackson A World So Full Of Love by Ray Sanders. Alabama by Cowboy Copus. Am I Losing You by Jim Reeves. Love Jim Reeves. So glad that he was finally on there. I had never heard of any of those other songs. And I consider myself quite a music aficionado. And finally rounding that out, Are You Lonesome Tonight by Elvis Presley. Books for 1960, there was quite a few and quite a few popular ones. To Kill a Mockingbird was published. Green Eggs and Ham, Are You My Mother?, One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. All of those by the incomparable Dr. Seuss. Peter Pan, For Your Eyes Only. And that, of course, is the James Bond novel, or novelette, I guess is what you want to call it nowadays, by Ian Fleming. And Little Bear's Friend. Remember my kids used to watch Little Bear. I thought it was annoying, but they seemed to like it. <clears throat> movies uh psycho was number one for the year i can really relate with norman the magnificent seven another fantastic movie the apartment if you've never seen that that has um jack lemon and oh crap shirley mclean and the guy from my three sons i can't for the life of me think of his name It's a really, really good movie. The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Cimarron. Spartacus. That had uh, uh, Kirk Douglas in it. Um, I never realized that Spartacus had a dipping pool in the middle of his chin. But, nonetheless. Little Shop of Horrors. Village of the Damned. I love that book and I love that movie. And House of Usher. That is... Is a great flick later on by uh, Vincent Price on Broadway we had bye-bye birdie Camelot with Richard Harris I think that's who it was Camelot on Broadway Finian's Rainbow the unsinkable Molly Brown and West Side Story on television we had the Andy Griffith Show. I think I am the only person in the United States at all that can't stand the the Andy Griffith Show. I don't know what it is about it. Dopey, Opie, and uh, just I don't know. I just can't stand it. Speaking of uh, the guy from My Three Sons, My Three Sons was actually on the uh, on on TV at that time. The Flintstones meet the Flintstones. They're the modern Stone Age family. 1960, man, Fred's been around a long time. Route 66, Popeye the Sailor Man. The Three Stooges, Davy and Goliath. And you guys may or may not remember Davy and Goliath. Being from Podunk, Nebraska, the Lutheran Church would sponsor Davy and Goliath on Sunday mornings, and we had this cartoon show called just the Sunday morning show with Morty Mouse and Mr. Dave Uh, or was it Mr. Doug no I think it was Mr. Dave and uh, always watch that before getting ready for mass the Bugs Bunny show you're on candid camera and Mr. Magoo and of course the topic for today as I mentioned before Ronald and Reggie Cray. So after these words from some of my new fake sponsors, uh, stick around. I'm going to tell you guys about the craze, and they're just fascinating. So stick with us. Are you looking for a used car? Well, come on down to Hillbilly
3: Willie's Used Car Emporium. We got the widest selection of low-quality, high-mileage cars and affordable in-house financing. Bad credit, slow credit, no credit, no problem. If you got a job and enough money down, you can drive away today. All our vehicles have Willie's famous thirty thirty warranty on it and a taillight protection plan. You can drive away with a smile. That's Hillbilly Willie's used car emporium located on Highway 6 just next to the Burnout Conoco Station. Come on down today. Your new car is waiting for
2: you. It's so am I. Willie's famous thirty thirty warranty isn't famous at all. All cars essentially are sold as is. The warranty stipulates 30 seconds or 30 feet, whichever comes first.
0: The views and opinions expressed are just that rob's views and opinions he's not always politically correct and those views may not match up with your own please believe me it is not his intention to offend anyone hopefully you find the shows entertaining and informative as well please note rob is not a professional historian but he has done a lot of research for this show with that being said mistakes happen but he will do his best to minimize those keep in mind he's just some nut with a microphone
2: all right welcome back from that break I appreciate you hanging around there. Hopefully those uh, commercials were both informative and entertaining. So let's talk about the craze. Um, A lot of people here in the United States are already, if you follow organized crime, you're familiar with the uh, Gambino family and Paul Castellano and, of course, um, uh, Al Capone, all of those guys lucky Luciani Uh, it just seems to be something that that as Americans we're very in touch with our organized crime so the craze were identical twin brothers they were gangsters and murderers they were the most foremost perpetrators of organized crime in the East End of London with their gang known as the firm The Cray Twins were involved in murder, armed robbery, arson, protection rackets, gambling, and assaults. In the 1960s, as West End nightclub owners, the Cray Twins, mixed with politicians and prominent entertainers such as Doris Day, Frank Sinatra, and Judy Garland, they were considered celebrities of their time, even though they were on the wrong side of the law. The Crays were called upon to do national service in the British Army in 1952. Although the pair reported to the depot of the Royal Fusiliers, and I know I mispronounced that, at the Tower of London, they attempted to leave only after a few minutes, saying, "Eh, you know what, this really ain't for me, I'm out of here. When the corporal in charge tried to stop them, he was seriously injured by Ronnie when he got punched in the face in the jaw. After the altercation, the Crays walked back to their East End home. In the morning, they were arrested by the police and turned over to the Army. In September, while absent without leave again, the twins assaulted a police constable who tried to arrest them. They became amongst the last prisoners to be held at the Tower of London. What an honor that is. Wow. However, when it became clear they were both to be dishonorably discharged from the army, the crazed behavior became even worse. They dominated the exercise areas outside their one-man cells. They threw tantrums, emptied their latrine buckets over a sergeant, dumped a canteen full of hot tea on another guard, handcuffed a guard to their prison bars with a pair of stolen cuffs, and set their beds on fire. Maybe somebody should have gotten spanked as a kid. Eventually, they were moved to a communal cell where they assaulted their guard with a vase and escaped. After being quickly recaptured, they spent their last night in military custody in Canterbury, drinking cider, eating crisps, and for those of you here in the United States that have no idea what crisps are, they're our version of either potato chips or crackers. I don't know why. And they were smoking cigarellos, courtesy of and they were smoking cigarellos, courtesy of the young national servicemen acting as their guards. The next day, the crazes were transferred to a civilian prison to serve sentences for the crimes they committed while they were AWOL. The prison psychiatrist who examined Ronnie found him to be quote unquote educationally subnormal, psychopathic, schizophrenic, and insane. Sounds like they were talking to my doctor despite a less than stellar military career the craze adopted a very old ult- the craze adopted an extremely militaristic style as Ronnie took to calling himself the colonel maybe just like chicken I don't know while they're home at while their home at 17 while their home at 178 Valence Road was dubbed Fort Valence. The crazed criminal record and dishonorable discharges from the military ended their boxing careers, and the brothers turned to crime full-time. <clears throat> they bought a run-down snooker club. And Gen Xers, I really hope you know what snooker is. It's like pool but it's got smaller pockets and smaller balls it is actually a a very intense game because it takes so much more skill than what billiards does. Anyway, they bought that snooker club in Mile End where they started several protection rackets and by the end of the 1950s the Crays were working for Jay Murray. and He was from Liverpool and they were involved in hijacking, armed robbery, arson. And through those actions, that's how they acquired their other clubs and properties. In 1960, Ronnie was imprisoned for 18 months for running a protection racket. And this is where their solo career takes off. Hence the reason why they fall into our Gen X category. <coughs> <coughs> The twins adopted a norm of according to which anyone who fought... Fi- the twins adopted a action that was, became normal according to anyone who failed to show respect would be severely punished. Scratch that. Both Ronnie and Reggie notoriously laundered money through dog and horse tracks, as well as through businesses, which led to several others being investigated during the mid-1960s for their cooperation with crime. We had kind of the same thing going on over here with uh, Robert Kennedy and Jimmy Hoffa. They were assisted by a banker named Alan Cooper, who wanted protection against the Cray's rivals, the Richardson Gang of South London. Ronnie was called the quote-unquote dimmer of the two twins, stating that he was, quote, a man whose grasp on reality was so slight and pathologically deranged that he was able to live out a crude, primarily colored fiction, twisting the city into the shape of a bad thriller. Wow. Wow. Ronnie quite consciously modeled the style of the quote unquote firm after what he read about the Chicago underworld, for having an example for example, having his own barber visit his flat to work on his hair because he read somewhere that this was the quote unquote normal practice with Chicago gangsters in the 1920s. <clears throat> The Krays greatly valued their image and cultivated the media by inviting journalists to take photos of them with the celebrities that I mentioned earlier at nightclubs or donating to charity. The Krays went about in an obsessive way of managing and promoting their image that they wanted, namely as society's benefactors who gave generously to charities as the men had risen up from poverty to become rich and powerful. It was written that the Crays had "quote unquote" a sophisticated awareness of the importance of public relations, matched only in the image-conscious field of American politics. It went on to say, as we have seen, certain of the Cray projects, as we have seen, certain of the Cray projects, when closely examined, take on a bizarre aspect more appropriate to the theater than a rational pursuit of profit by crime, end quote. <clears throat> in 1960, gambling in clubs was legalized in the United Kingdom, which for the first time allowed quote-unquote decent people to be seen openly gambling outside of the horse track races. The craze were owners of four nightclubs where gambling was allowed, which was not only allowed... Which not only allowed them to be seen as successful businessmen, but also to socialize with the decent people who had been previously shunned at, who had been previously shunned, at least in public. The company of gangsters by running a gambling den. The Craze made a point of promoting a gangster chic image, which both dressed in style, that uh, countless films had associated with gangsters, wearing namely discreet, dark, double-breasted suits and a tight knotted tie and shoulder padded overcoats, which I would love to see that style come back. I know I'm an old fart, but I still think suits are classy. Combined with garish jewelry, such as large gold rings, gold bracelet watches, and diamond cufflinks the craze conveyed a reasonable conveyed a redoubtable image a british scholar described the craze as an ex- classic example of the social bandit criminals who become folk heroes because of the belief that they were standing up to a corrupt establishment while also paradoxically being seen as upholding a better part of society's values. The crazes were viewed in certain quarters as Robin Hood type criminals. Those crimes were seen as acceptable. He also noted they combined an air of menace and violence together with an image of romanticized air of heroic gentlemanness, generosity, and the apparent reinforcement of traditional social order parameters, of conserva- conservatism and restraint. <clears throat> Within this context, the craze made a point of stressing that there were limits to the values that they were willing to violate while promoting the image of themselves, of the benefactors of society. For example, the craze made a great point of stressing the image of being respectful towards women that they knew that the public did not like who were disrespectful towards women. Let's try that again. For example, the craze made a great point of stressing the image of being respectful towards women because they knew the British public did not like men who were disrespectful towards women. One former member of the firm, Tony Lambra, Lambriano, Lambriano. Tony Lambriano stated that the positive image of the craze was a myth, quote-unquote, As he maintained, the only people the brothers ever cared about were themselves. However, the image of the craze had little to do with the brothers. Act who, however, the image of the craze had little to do with who the brothers actually were as they described the craze as considerably more vicious and selfish than the popular folk hero image that would uh, follow them. The East End at the time had its own informal rules, such as a deep distrust for Scott, The East End, had, at the time, had its own informal rules as a deep distrust of Scotland Yard, as the exemplified by the popular saying, Thou shalt not grass," which led to the police complaining of a wall of silence. I don't get where they come up with some of those t- sayings, but whatever. Conversely, the Cray twins were seen in the other quarters as symbols of moral decay and evil, with the famous photographers of the two brothers being viewed as the architects of villainy. Wow. <clears throat> With the famous photographs of the two brothers being viewed as psychologically arch... Scratch that whole thing. The closeness of the Krays made them seem sinister as one man who had dealings with the Krays remembered. Quote, you were never ever on solid ground with them. They played a little game of their own. There was an unspoken language. It wasn't what they said as much as what they didn't say. That's a myth that the craze took care of their own, but I never saw it. Quote, end quote. <clears throat> Along this quote-unquote freak show image were suggestions that of what was viewed at the time as pervertedly sexual. At the time when homosexuality was widely considered abnormal, Especially in the underworld of East End London, Ronnie made it a point of flaunting his homosexual relationships, which was considered to be quite shocking in the 1960s and. Which was considered to be quite shocking in the 50s and the 1960s. Reggie was heterosexual, but there were rumors that he had boyfriends as a teenager. Alongside these rumors were the facts that he had only known one relationship with a woman and was briefly married to her, and this marriage was apparently never consummated, which all led to the widespread belief that he was also gay. The, bra- the, the Cray brothers formed an alliance with the Commission of New York, the mafia, favored nightclubs and casinos for money the mafia favored nightclubs and casinos for money laundering, and greatly preferred nightclubs and casinos abroad as a way to avoid hostile audits by the American authorities. The nightclubs and casinos of Havana had served that purpose for a long time, but after the Communist Revolt in 1959, it led to their closure. The Mafia had been looking for a replacement, leading to interests in the London nightclubs. In 1964, Ronnie flew out to New York to meet with members of the Mafia, but the meeting was aborted when the U.S. Customs refused him admission under the grounds that he had a criminal record. Ronnie shot and killed George Cornell, a member of the Richardson gang at the Blind Beggar Pub in Whitechapel, on March 9, 1966. The day before, there had been a shootout at Mr. Smith's, a nightclub in Catford, involving the Richardsons and Richard Hart, an associate of the Crays, who was shot dead. This public shootout led to the arrest of nearly all of the Richardson gang. Cornell, by chance, was not present at the club during the shooting and was not arrested. Ronnie was drinking in another pub when he learned of Cornell's whereabouts. He went to the blind beggar with his driver, Scotch Jack, John Dickinson, Scotch Jack, John Dixon, and his assistant, Ian Barry. Ronnie went into the pub with Barry, walked straight up to Cornell, and shot him in the head in public view. Barry confessed... Barry, confused by what happened, fired five shots in the air, warning onlookers not to report what they had seen to the police. Just before he was shot, Cornell remarked, well, look who's here. He died at 3.30 a.m. in a hospital. Ronnie was already suffering from paranoid schizophrenia at the time of the killing according to some sources ronnie killed cornell because he referred to him as a quote fat poof a derogatory term for gay men end quote during a confrontation between the Crays and the richardsons at the astor club on christmas day in 1965 <clears throat> richardson member frankie frazier was tried for the murder of Hart. At Mr. Smith's, but was not found guilty. Richardson member Ray, the Belgian, Coulaney testified that he saw Cornell kicking Hart. Witnesses could not cooperate with the co- witnesses would not cooperate with the police in the murder case due to intimidation, and the trial ended inconclusively without pointing to any suspect in particular. In his 1988 memoir, Ronnie wrote, I felt fucking marvelous. Let me see if I can do that again. In his 1988 memoir, Ronnie wrote, I felt fucking marvelous. I have never felt so good, so bloody alive, before, ever, and since. 20 years on, I can still recall every second of the killing of George Cornell. I have replayed it in my mind a million times. End quote. That was horrible. In his 1988 memoir, Ronnie wrote, I felt fucking marvelous. I have never felt so good, so bloody alive, before or since. 20 years on, I can still recall every second of the killing of George Cornell. I have replayed it in my mind millions of times. The Craze Mafia allies were unhappy about the Cornell murder, feeling it was reckless on the part of Ronnie to commit a murder in public instead of assigning some task to a junior associate. Reggie was able to help with the raft of to maintain Reggie was able to help Reggie was able with the help of raft to maintain the alliance arguing the firm was still the best business partner of the mafia in london raft and reggie used the fact that none of the witnesses at the blind beggar were willing to testify against ronnie As the evidence of the decree of fear, Raft and Reggie used the fact that none of the witnesses at the Blind Beggar were willing to testify against Ronnie. Shortly afterwards, Raft was prevented from returning to Britain following a trip back to the United States by a home office order as an undesirable therefore costing the craze their strongest ally with the Mafia. On December 12th, 1966, the craze helped Frank Mitchell, the Mad Axeman, to escape from Dartmoor Prison. Ronnie had befriended Mitchell while they were serving time together in Wandsworth Prison. Mitchell felt that the authorities should review his case for parole, so Ronnie thought that he would do him a favor by getting him out of Dartmoor, highlighting his case in the media and forcing the authorities to act. Brilliant. Once Mitchell had escaped, the craze held him at a friend's flat in Barking Road, East Ham. He was a large man with a mental disorder and was difficult to control. He disappeared, but the Crays were acquitted of his murder. Freddie Foreman, a friend of the Crays, claimed in his autobiography, Respect, that he shot Mitchell dead as a favor to the Quins and disposed of his body at sea. In October, 1967, four months after the suicide of his wife, Frances, Reggie was allegedly encouraged by his brother to kill Jack the Hat McVitie, a minor member of the Cray gang who had failed to fulfill a thousand-pound contract. Five hundred pounds, which had been paid to him in advance to kill their formal... To kill their formal... To kill their former financial advisor, Leslie Payne. McVitie was lured to a basement flat at Evering Road, Stoke Newington, on the pretense of a party. Upon entering the premises, he saw Ronnie seated in the front room. Ronnie approached, letting loose a barrage of verbal abuse and cutting McVie below the eye with a piece of broken glass. (coughs) It is believed that an argument then broke out between the twins and McVitie. As the argument got more heated, Reggie pointed a handgun at McVitie's head and pulled the trigger twice, but the gun failed to discharge. McVitie was then held in a bear hug by the twins' cousin, Ronnie Hart, and Reggie was... McVitie was then held in a bear hug by the twin's cousin, Ronnie Hart, and Reggie handed and Reggie was handed a carving knife. He then stabbed McVitie in the face and the stomach, driving the blade in and out of his neck, twisting it and not stopping, even as McVitie lie on the floor dying. Reggie had committed a very public murder against someone whose Many members of the firm felt did not deserve to die. In an interview in 2000, shortly after Reggie's death, Freddie Foreman revealed that McVitie had a reputation for leaking, had a reputation for leaving carnage behind him due to his habitual consumption of drugs, and heavy drinking, and having threatened harm to the twins and their family. Well, that would do it. If you threaten a couple of psychopaths, you're probably going to meet your, ma- your end. Detective Chief Superintendent Leonard Nipper Reed of Scotland Yards was promoted to the murder squad and his first assignment was to bring down the craze. During the first half of 1964, Reed had been investigating their activities and publicity and official denials of Reed had been investigating their activities, but publicly the officials denial. What? Oh, Reed had been investigating their activities, but publicity and officials denials of Ron's relationship with Boothby made the evidence that he collected useless. Reed went after the twins again in 1967, but frequently came up against the East End Wall of Silence, which discouraged anyone from providing information to the police. By the end of 1967, Reed had built up enough evidence against the Krays. Eventually, Scotland Yard decided to arrest the Krays on the evidence already collected in the hope that other witnesses would be forthcoming once the Krays were in custody. On May 8, 1968, the Craze and 15 other members of the firm were arrested. Exceptional measures were used to stop collusion between the accused. Nipper Nipper Reed then secretly interviewed each of the arrested and offered each member of the firm a deal if they testified against the others. <coughs> Ronnie and Reggie Cray were allowed under a large police guard to attend the funeral service of their mother Violet that passed away in 1982 following her death from cancer a week earlier they were not allowed to attend her burial at the Cray family plot however Ronnie Cray was a prisoner Ronnie Cray was a prisoner category A denied almost all liberties and not allowed to mix with other prisoners. He eventually was certified insane, his paranoid schizophrenia being tempered with constant medication. In 1979, he was committed and lived the remainder of his life in Broadmoor Hospital. Reggie was locked up in Maidstone Prison for eight years, Category B. In 1997, he was transferred to Category C Wayland Prison. <clears throat> In 1985, officials at Broadmoor Hospital discovered a business card of Ronnie's that led to evidence that the twins from separate institutions were operating Kralay Enterprises, a lucrative bodyguard and protection business for Hollywood stars, together with their older brother Charlie as an accomplice at large. In his book, My Story, Ronnie stated, I'm bisexual, not homosexual, bisexual. In the 1960s he also planned to marry a woman named monica whom he had dated for nearly three years he called her quote the most beautiful woman he had ever seen end quote rodney was arrested before he had the chance to marry monica and although she married her his ex-boyfriend 59 letters sent to her between may and december of 1968 when he was in prison showed how Ronnie still had feelings for her, and his love for her was very clear. He referred to her as, quote, my little angel or my little doll, end quote. She also had feelings for Ronnie. A letter Ronnie sent to his mother, Violet, from prison in 1968 also refers to Monica, quote, if they let me see Monica and put me with Reg, I could not ask for more, end quote. He went on to say, Monica is the only girl I've ever liked in my life. She is a lovely little person, as you know. When you see her, tell her I am in love with her more than ever. Ronnie subsequently married twice, marrying Elaine Mildner in 1985 at Broadmoor Chapel before the couple divorced in 1989, and then followed he married Kate Howard, which whom he divorced in 1994. Kate Howard lived for a number of years in Headcourt, Kent, in Forge Lane. Reggie married Frances Shee in 1965. She committed suicide two years later. In 1997, Reggie married Roberta Jones, whom he met while still in prison. She was hoping to publicize a film she was making about Ronnie, who had died in the hospital two years earlier. There was a long-running campaign with some minor celebrity support to have the twins released from prison, but successive home secretaries vetoed the idea largely on the grounds that both Cray's prison records were marred by violence towards other inmates. Reggie wrote, I seem to have walked a double path most of my life. Perhaps an extra step in one of those directions might have Seen me celebrated rather than notorious other point to reggie's violent criminal record others point to reggie's violent prison record when he was being detained separately from ronnie and argue that in reality the twins temperaments were very little difference reggie's marry, reggie's marriage to Frances shea lasted eight months when she left although the marriage was never formally dissolved. In an inquest, came to the conclusion that she had committed suicide. But in 2002, an ex-lover of Reggie Craze came forward to allege Francis was murdered by a jealous Ronnie. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Bradley Allardyce, spent three years in Maidstone Prison with Reggie and explained, I was sitting in my cell with Reg and it was one of those nights where we turned the lights down and put on some nice music and he sometimes would reminisce. He would get really deep and open up to me. He suddenly broke down and said, I'm going to tell you something I've never told. I'm going to tell you something I've only ever told two people and something I've carried around with me something that's been a black hole since the day he found out the he put him put his head down on my shoulder he then put his head down on my shoulder and told me ronnie killed francis he told reggie what he had done two days afterwards ronnie died on march 17 1995 at the age of 61 at wexham park hospital in slough berkshire he suffered a heart attack at Broadmire. He suffered a heart attack at Broadmoor Hospital two days earlier. Reggie was allowed out of prison in handcuffs to attend the funeral. Reggie died of terminal cancer after being released from prison on a compassionate ground at the age of nineteen sixty six. At the age of sixty six, on october first, two thousand. The final weeks of his life were spent with his wife of three years, Roberta, in a suite of the townhouse hotel at Norwich, after he left the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital on September 22, 2000. Ten days after his death, he was buried beside his brother Ronnie at Mount, at Chingford Mount Cemetery. During the funeral, crowds of thousands lined up to applaud. Charlie Cray, Ronnie and Reggie's older brother, was released from prison in 1975 after serving seven of his ten-year sentence for his role in their gangland crimes. Charlie was then sentenced to 12 years imprisonment in 1997 for conspiracy to smuggle cocaine in an undercover drug operation. He died in prison of natural causes on April 4th, 2000 at the age of 72. And Ronnie was allowed out of prison to attend his older brother's funeral. So, a lot to digest there. Um, When we come back from my break, uh, I'm gonna go over some of the things that I have found about the the craze and how it's kind of affected me. So stick around.
0: And remember, if you'd like to learn one of life's most valuable secrets, just send $20 to the announcer in care of this station. And by return mail, you'll receive your very own copy of the exciting one-and-a-half-page book entitled Why You Should Never Send Some Guy 20 Bucks Just Because He Asks You To Over the Radio.
2: This portion of the show is brought to you by Beer. Beer, helping ugly people get laid for hundreds of years. So if you don't look the best or you just are plain ass mud ugly, go find someone who's drunk on beer.
0: Any claims of time travel is purely fictitious and should not be believed as these claims are only for entertainment purposes. Plus, honestly, if you believe these claims, we only have one thing to say. What the hell is wrong with you?
2: All right, welcome back from that break. I didn't really know much about the Krays until I watched the movie Legend with Tom Hardy playing both Reg and Ron Cray. Now, since then, I've become more than just interested in them, as I have with a lot of our gangsters here in the U.S. Like Gotti, Castellano, Capone, Whitey Bulger. Um, it was kind of like I was on a mission to find out more things about the Krays. Uh, I've seen movies, documentaries, and read so much on them. But from what I've seen, I would say that the movie Legend was more accurate than what it wasn't. There were things that they embellished on for uh, theatrical liberties. And it was one of those uh, I, I definitely recommend um, I think right now I think it's on Amazon <clears throat> or HBO Max. They had mingled with some of the biggest names at the time. And I'm very envious of that. I mean like Judy Garland sang a song for their mom, Violet. Even from prison, they still they still continued their protection racket and supplied Sinatra. Frank Sinatra with 18 bodyguards in 1985 from prison. Ron was openly bisexual, which was a crime in 19 until 1967. In the 1960s, the Krays were widely seen as prosperous and charming celebrity nightclub owners. A large part of their fame was because they were photographed and socializing with Lords, socialites, and showbiz characters, such as, like I said, Sinatra, Peter Sellers from The Pink Panther, Joan Collins from Dynasty and a number of movies, Judy Garland as I mentioned from Broadway and The Wizard of Oz and other movies, Sammy Davis Jr., Shirley Bassey, Liza Minnelli, love Liza, Dusty Springfield, Jane Mansfield, And Richard Harris. And if your eyes aren't sure who Jane Mansfield is, she was kind of the ghetto uh, version of Marilyn Monroe. They were the best years of our lives. They called them the swinging 60s. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones were rulers of pop music. Carnaby Street ruled the fashion world. And me and my brother ruled London. We were fucking untouchable. And that was from Ronnie Cray in his autobiography, My Story. Another part of the Cray's celebrity status was due to the widespread perception that the twins had risen out of poverty. We all love a story of, of somebody making it, regardless whether they're in the United States or if they're in the United Kingdom. But they rose to those positions of great wealth and power due to their own efforts that's the reason that's one of the reasons why they rose to such celebrity the craze were also seen as an example uh, albeit a perverse one of the mediocrity that was to replace the traditional class system furthermore The 1960s were a time when many traditional British values were being questioned, as they were across the world. The Cray Twins were widely seen as rebels against what they were perceived as the sanctimonious and hypocritical traditional British values. There was a popular mistrust of the establishment. Again, this was a worldwide thing. Uh, especially in the 1960s, and many people laughed at leaders like Prime Minister Macmillan and President Lyndon B. Johnson, their teachers, their university lectures, the priests, and the moralists, all of that behind their back. The crazes were seen as folk heroes. The swinging 60s era was a time of intense debates arising from consumerism, social mobility, sexuality, style, and social tolerance. And the craze were involved in all of that as far as symbols, either good or bad, about the changes taking place in British society and really the entire world. I really want to thank you for sticking around for this episode of GXO. Hopefully the noise level wasn't too terribly bad. I'm still getting used to the new digs, um, coming up with some soundproofing. So hopefully everything sounded okay. I know I could hear one of my producers in the background chewing on one of my slippers. Um, Harley is with me. My other producer is staying with one of my mini ex-wives, uh, and I've mentioned it before that I have been married and divorced more times than a person should ever be able to. Uh, So I do miss Daisy being a producer and just being around on the, uh, on the show. So until next time I bid you adieu and I want to leave you with this thought. This is from Doctor Who, and it is the regeneration scene of the 11th Doctor going into the 12th. And I really kind of put this into my own life. We all change. When you think about it, we're all different people. All through our lives. And that's okay. That's good. You've got to keep moving. As long as you remember all of the people you used to be. I will never forget one line of this, not one day. I swear, I will always remember when the doctor was me. Thanks for listening to GXO. And if you have a topic for our show or would like to comment, please go to the contact page on our website, www.genxord.com. That's genxord.com. And remember, he who expected nothing ain't going to be deceived.